welcome to the Beervana Podcast. We join you nearly live from the studios of X-Ray FM here in the Falcon Art Building in beautiful North Portland. And with me finally, back from his wanderings through Europe, is Jeff Allworth. Not exactly bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but I'm here. Well, no. You can't really blame jet lag anymore. No. I, <laughs> I, I, I transitioned from jet lag into insomnia. So so it was weird. Uh, having you remotely worked out pretty well, I think. The audio was not bad. But it was bizarre being here by myself in the studio. Yeah, I bet it was. It felt a little disconcerting. And I think it... I think you can tell by the way I, the way I talk. <laughs> so it's good to have you back, Jeff. Welcome home. There, there is something about the the human interaction. We do actually look at each other, so it, it's weird when you're on different continents. Disembodied is is odd. Yeah. yeah. So we were thinking about doing some more remote, and this timings and all didn't work out. But I'm actually pleased that we're back. <laughs> we're back here. I think it's going to make for a lot better pod. Yeah, certainly. Uh, but we are going to go back in time and discuss more of your European adventures. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But I should introduce you formally, Jeff Allworth. You are author of The Beer Bible, Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers. You were in Europe to research the new edition of The Beer Bible. Yes, sir. Uh, look for it soon. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a it's pretty fast turnaround. It'll be I think spring twenty twenty one, which is you that know, is fast. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fast. So uh, don't don't wait too long. Is this going to be a thorough rewrite, or are you going to just kind of add? How, how how are you envisioning the the new version to go? Definitely not a thorough rewrite. Um, but we will. Uh, I'll be. I'll definitely be uh, looking to change things as the world has changed since. Uh, since, since I last wrote it, and I, you know, in American IPA, that's been a massive change. Or in America, with American IPA and and yeah. kind of all the transitions that's happened here, that makes a lot of sense. I assumed that the old countries would not have changed so much, but teaser, um, <laughs> they've changed kind of a lot. So we're going to talk about Belgium today, and um, you know, I, I think those chapters that I expected not to change so much will have a little bit more new content than I thought. Nice. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it because we actually haven't talked very much. I haven't seen you since you got back. Yeah, I haven't been back long. <laughs> and you brought good weather with you, or maybe the good weather greeted you. While you were gone, the weather was crap. I brought it from Berlin. It was beautiful in Berlin. Yeah, I had the same experience. I had a glorious time in Berlin. Huh. Uh, actually, Germany, the whole time I was there, the weather was amazing. Um, but yeah, we're back and the weather's good. And uh, September was ridiculously wet and gross, and uh, October now apparently is uh, drier than average suddenly. So It's always sunny in Portland and Berlin. The good thing about global warming is it creates a whole new uh, weather experience for you to, <laughs> to enjoy. You, can all, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> all right, I should introduce you. You are Patrick Emerson. I am. Uh, professor of economics at uh, Oregon State University, where, uh, once again, you didn't win the Nobel Prize. I was disappointed to hear. Yeah, I know. It was really close this year. I thought. I, I expected. <laughs> so here's the but, sad thing. But it's in your wheelhouse, yeah? Yeah. So it's pretty exciting uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the winners of the uh, Nobel Prize this year are three uh, relatively young economists. So Nobel Prize usually goes to really old people because they don't award them posthumously. So they wait. They're looking for people who are uh, <laughs> getting near the end uh, usually to uh, award them. This year, there's fairly, uh, three fairly young, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo of MIT in the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, J-PAL, uh, and Michael Kramer of Harvard University are all three development economists. Like and you. Like me, and development has always been kind of the 
I don't know, bastard stepchild of economics, not getting a whole lot of respect, even though I would argue that it perhaps tackles by far the most important issues in the world. Yeah. Good part of the globe is populated uh, or population lives in, in what we would call lower middle income countries. And there's a lot of poverty and uh, other uh, human development issues. Anyway, before I get on my, my high horse, it's nice. Uh, Angus Deaton, a few years ago, was awarded the Nobel Prize. He's also a development economist, and a few years before that, uh, Martia Sen was awarded the Nobel Prize. So there's been three prizes that now have gone to development economics, and it's nice. Uh, and and the these sad, guys? The what? sad thing is it makes me feel really old. Esther Dufla, I think, is only something like 46 years old. Uh, she's quite young. Uh, it makes me feel old when people that are sort of my contemporaries are starting to win. I actually, uh, Michael Kramer came to Cornell when I was a graduate student there and gave a talk. He was a pretty young, new, fairly new professor at the time. Uh, I drove him around town in my little three-banger, three-cylinder Subaru Justy. Oh, the Justy. Nice. <laughs> uh, interesting fact, Michael Kramer <laughs> didn't know how to drive then. I doubt he does now. He had no interest in driving, so uh, uh, he's talented at many things, but not at driving. Uh, super nice guy. Um, Abhijit Banerjee, I've also, I've met all three of them. All three are quite nice. The only um, uh, caveat I would give to the award is that they were a little, uh, the award kind of awards the whole uh, randomized control trial revolution in economics, mm. which has largely been started at least in development economics. These uh, controlled experiments uh, happen, uh, which I think are fantastic. Uh, at, there was a time, however, when it was almost impossible to publish anything but a randomized control trial because they were very uh, adamant that sort of the only true causality you can find is through a control experiment, which in some senses is correct, but it also kind of disparaged the uh, traditional um, big data analysis analyses that were going on. We've sort of, the pendulum always swings in these things, and it's back now. But uh, there was a time in which they were very militant about how you can't trust anything but experiments. And the problem with experiment is you do get, you, you do get causality, but in a very limited uh, environment. And so mm -hmm. the sort of, um, exportability or the generalizability of those results are uh, sometimes hard to uh, have confidence in. Anyway, I'm getting way off track. So <laughs> congratulations to the to the new Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, it's something that uh, is near, near and dear to your heart. So I, I think everyone's <laughs> Yeah, so you can listen, uh, to, this pod, you can to, listen to the pod with uh, Van Havig of Gigantic if you really want to get deep dives into economics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, that, we, you, you sign up for this pod, you get economics. So there it is. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, it's pretty exciting uh, to have development uh, really sort of start to come to the fore. It's been a long time. Uh, so I'm happy about that. Cool. Uh, we should also uh, say use this opportunity to say uh, our fond farewell to uh, Will, our old producer. That's who, right. Who's now... In uh, literally greener pastures, I guess. Perhaps not greener pastures, but but further east pastures. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he's malting. Uh, he, he went into the beer industry. He is now working for Valley Malts as a maltster, which is pretty darn cool. Yeah, that is. Uh, he was very excited about that. And you can actually expect, I think, to hear him on this podcast at a future time when we interview him as a subject and he'll talk about malting. We've, That's right. We, we, we've conspired to uh, plan that. Yeah, we're going to give him a few months to get his feet under him and learn the business and then we'll yeah. grill him <laughs> see That'd how much cool. he's learned uh okay so before we get started we'd like to thank uh freem family brewers for sponsoring this episode of the beer bonnet podcast you can find them in hood river oregon and at freembeer.com that's p-f-r-i-e-m-b-e-e-r.com indeed 
Go Freem. <laughs> go, go, go drink Freem. Uh, go visit Freem. Yeah. It's actually a beautiful time to go down the gorge, too. Uh, I was just there over the weekend. And I have to uh, report that there's lots of great beer in Hood River, yeah. including at Freem. Uh, and just a few doors down at Ferment, which won a gold medal, a uh, new brewery. Yeah. So I stopped in to Ferment so that I could try not just that, but I did try the gold medal winning uh, English style pale ale. And right, fact, right up your alley. Exactly up my alley. Yeah, and I didn't have enough time to sort of sit around and and try other. I mean, I tried their uh, their Hellas, which I thought was nice, a little bit heavy to me, um, to my taste. But um, uh, the English style pale ale was right uh, in my wheelhouse and uh, delightful. Sort of a malt forward pale with English hops. Yeah. Yeah, I. For for various reasons, you were not able to bring me back some, which we don't need to get into. But uh, <laughs> I I still haven't made it to ferment and need to do that. So pretty soon you're going to start bringing Ufleku again. Okay. Uh... Uh, well, no, th- this one I completely forgive you. Your <laughs> the intention was there, of circumstances that impeded. Uh, it was a really cool place. Uh, both Freem and uh, Ferment are in this new area down by the river. Yeah. Which was an old industrial area that they're redeveloping, and they have a beautiful new park now. Um, and the ferment is cool because it's not right across from the park and right across from the river, therefore, like Freem is, but it's up on the second floor and has a big giant terrace and patio with a big uh-huh. fire going, which was nice because it was chilly, but, uh, but nice to sit outside and you can sort of look across the low, uh, there's still one more sort of industrial building in front of it, but it's just a one story thing. So you look over the top and see the river and everything is, is lovely. So. Very cool. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> well, we've had it was a long preamble, but we've been uh, we've been apart, so you know, yeah, got a chat. <laughs> so, uh, but it occurs to me I forgot to start the stopwatch, so I don't know how long we've been going. Ah, who we'll, cares? Yeah, people, <laughs> we'll figure that out. People just want more and more anyway, right? <laughs> Never too much beer on a podcast. You know, what are they? They're not paying by the minute. All right, so you're back in the studio. We didn't get in touch after you left England. Well, we did, actually. You were from Belgium, but we talked about England. Uh, but we need to talk about your other stops in the European adventure. So in today's pod, we're going to focus on Belgium. Uh, you spent a week there staying in Brussels, Antwerp, and the Ghent area. Uh, you toured several breweries uh, while you were there and discovered an interesting theme along his travel. <laughs> his travel, damn it. I was doing it all in the I first know. person. And then, uh, okay, your script didn't read that way and I was editing on the fly. I, I, I was impressed. It was a it was a high wire act that eventually you fell. I almost made it. <laughs> you plummeted so, to the death. To the last personal preposition. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, you discovered an interesting theme along your travels in Belgium. That kind of sound... More, Anyway, never mind. I was going to say, I sound like Terry Gross there. So, Jeff, you discovered many things in your travels. I'll tell you how you feel. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you, felt, and you felt good about your travels. Please, let's not invoke Terry Gross. The trend forward seems to be looking back and mining the country's rich brewing history. Uh, so we'll get to all that soon. But, of course, before we do, I know you've all been pining for this. The news. Uh, just over a week ago, the Great American Beer Festival handed out their annual awards. Each year, the number of medals grows, and in 2019, it was up from 306 to 318, <laughs> which is a lot. That's uh, a lot of but the number of entrants grows as well, and there were uh, around 9,500 this year, which was up 1,000 from yeah, a year ago. that's the so, thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of medals, but man, there are a lot of breweries now. It's getting harder, more, more medals, but harder to win them. And yep. uh, I think we saw that in, I, I glanced through the list and 
boy, there were a lot of breweries there I had never heard of. I mean, yes. you know, so many breweries in the, the country now, you just can't keep up. So yeah, uh, from all over the place. I mean, yeah, there's. Well, know, there was a brewery in Hood River I'd never heard about right? <laughs> <laughs> called Ferment, as we just mentioned. I had no idea they existed. Yeah. Uh, but that's down partly to me. Uh, and they were one of the, what, 14, 15, 16 medals that yeah, Oregon like breweries that. took home. Washington was something similar, 14, I think, something like that. So way to go Pacific Northwest, represent. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I don't know what else I'll say. Yeah. Say anyway, it, ha it happened. I'm sure you saw it happen and you've been down to your local winning brewery and congratulated them and supported them. So, yeah, we've talked about the GBF in the past. We probably don't have to go any deeper than that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a marking of time, you know. It is. It's always nice as a brewery. I think the best part about the GABF is winning winning a medal. It gives you a nice little sort of talking point, something you can use to market. Uh, it helps little breweries get noticed sometimes. And I think inside the brewery, it's a moment of pride. They're really happy to win. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, next bit. Older legacy breweries have had a rough couple of years. Uh, just recently, we've heard about some more uh, headwinds. But here's a great story of successful transition. The three founders of Colorado's Odell Brewing, Wynn, Doug, and Corky Odell, announced that they are stepping away from day-to-day -day involvement in the company. The brewery became an ESOP uh, in 2015, so they sold shares to the employees. And a transition has been planning for years. Excuse me. The, the Odells will retain seats on the board for now, and Eric Smith will be promoted from within the company as CEO. The brewery has approached growth modestly, growing steadily over its 30 years to become one of the largest U.S. craft breweries. It produced around 125,000 barrels. Yeah, I think they're whoa. I think they're like 30 biggest, 30th biggest, or something like that. Wow! In 2018, up from 2017, and it appears to be on a stable footing, uh, heading forward. Yeah, yeah. When I lived in Colorado, they were already one of the sort of established major breweries, uh, which that was, you know, early noughties. So to be able to sustain that, yeah, is remarkable. Yeah, honestly, one, remarkable. One thing I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to elegantly put it in here, but they've had uh, in their press release they said they've only had three years where they've declined in those thirty years, which is pretty darn good. And they were up last year, which is also very good. Yeah, I mean, so. think about all of the new breweries in Colorado among yeah the rest of the the country. I wonder uh, it would be very interesting because a few years ago they finally changed the law where in grocery stores you can have regular beer not just 3.2 percent alcohol beer i wonder how that's the it was a very complex uh situation in terms of breweries not necessarily supporting uh that move but i wonder in exposed what the what the thoughts are now about how the market has has or hasn't opened up to smaller breweries it seems like it would benefit breweries like odell particularly exactly yeah, yeah. but i don't know i don't either well congratulations to the odells yeah Indeed. Well done. Okay, so let's turn to the main topic. Yeah. And basically, we're going to turn to you, Jeff, and you're going to tell us about your travels through Belgium and what you found. Uh, so I'm going to just kick it to you. Okay. Yeah, so uh, the reason, I'll to set it up, the reason I went to Belgium was to see how uh, things have changed since I was last there and wrote about uh, the uh, country in uh, the Beer Bible. And the, you know, really, Belgium has... Belgium, along with Germany, has been one of the countries that has kind of resisted American-style craft brewing. Uh, there have been a few, some new breweries in Belgium, but it's really modest compared to other countries. Uh, you know, not not probably not a hundred new breweries since I was last there. Um, and they are not like American craft breweries. People are there; those exist, 
<clears throat> there's a couple of them in Brussels and other places where, you know, they're making IPAs and Goza and Hellas. Sure. But they're really not common. Um, and what I discovered uh, was this kind of, Belgium has always been its own weird country as far as beer goes. Yeah. Uh, they have never marched to the drum of uh, anybody else. They've always just done their own thing. And it was it was fascinating to see. I, I When I set up my brewery tours, I was not intending to look for a theme. I just chose breweries that I thought uh, would inform me about uh, different kinds of aspects of what was happening. But I saw this through line where uh, in in most cases, they were looking at ways to rediscover Belgian tradition uh, as a way forward. So they were reintroducing beer or they were introducing beers that are from the 19th century mm-hmm. or um, uh, doubling down on, on Belgian tradition, um, in one case, resurrecting an old style. Uh, and that was super fascinating because you're not seeing that having, I followed Britain, I, I went to Belgium from Britain and Britain is going the other way. They're trying to get as far away from their tradition as they can. It seems like <laughs> they're just, you know, have no, no great appreciation or love of, of the old styles there. Uh, and they're very excited about, um, the, what America's doing yeah. and, and the new, you know, I mean, as a brewer, it does offer you an, an opportunity to do a lot more if you're going to open up your your palate to all all world styles. Yeah, so let me let me stop you for a second and just ask uh, sort of the uh, the naive question, or maybe better put, have you give a little bird's eye view of of the Belgian brewing scene? Because a lot of people think of like monastic brewing when they think of Belgium, and so can you kind of just give a little uh, uh, I don't know quick overview of what Belgian Belgian brewing has looked like in the past. Yeah, uh Belgium is is one of these places that has a super uh specific way of brewing, an intact brewing uh tradition which you'll you'll find uh this is I'm talking about the ale tradition. Okay. Uh, yeah, there are you. there are industrial lager manufacturers there which are faceless and make the same kind of industrial lager you find in yeah, every other we, country. And we can ign- safely ignore those. Yeah, so leaving that aside, um, the traditional breweries uh, make beer in this very particular Belgian way, which right. which focuses on uh, yeast as the principal flavor component, right. the driver of flavor. So they use, uh, they, they typically use local malts, but they're not a big part of the flavor profile, uh, not a huge part of the flavor profile. And uh, they don't even, Belgium grows hops, but but uh, in a small amount, very few breweries actually use Belgian hops. Right. So it all comes down to yeast. And the breweries will uh, tend to use very f- uh, flavor-forward yeasts as a primary fermenting mm-hmm. uh, agent. And then when uh, the beer is fully fermented out, instead of uh, force carbonating it, put it in a bottle, they re-ferment in the bottle, which right. gives it another opportunity to, to ferment. Uh, and create more flavor. So the beer styles that we associate in in Belgium are uh, have this characteristic, whether they're a, a strong dark beer that's like an Abbey ale or a uh, wit beer, mm-hmm. um, Belgian pale ale, a strong blonde ale. All of these have this characteristic in common. <clears throat> There's a whole wild tradition which we'll come to again, uh, but it even within the ales is a it's an outside. It represents an outsized portion of interest, but a right. small portion of the market. Yeah, well, that's one of the things about Belgium, right? Like what we understand about Belgium being in the export market is quite a bit different, perhaps. So that's why. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, 
it, the the other interesting thing is the the country is regional, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm going to get to a brewery called Verzette here in a minute, uh, which is characteristic of the Flanders style. So brown beers tend to come from uh, the western part of the country, the right. northern western part, right. uh, and um, the south part was traditionally the saison uh, producing, the rustic producing area, and the strong blonde beers came from the north up by uh, Antwerp. So there, there is some regionality, and, and the, the wheat beers went from, um, uh, there's kind of a wheat belt that, that extended from uh, Brussels uh, east. Uh-huh. Uh, so you had the lambics and the wheat beers. Uh, so historically, it was, it was kind of, there was some regionality to it, and you still see that intact. Now, uh, just kind of push the push the point. The monks, yeah, are a relatively small part of the brewing. I mean, they're a huge part of the the psych, <laughs> the, the the image that Americans get. I think when thinking about Belgian beers, they're always thinking about people and yeah, no, they're Trappist, actually Trappist robes. <laughs> they're they're a big part of the market. Okay, uh, these breweries actually produce a fair amount of beer. So there are depending on how you count it. If you if you include La Trappe, which is like just barely across the border in into uh, Amsterdam into mm-hmm. uh, the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, there are six or five or six or six or seven. I have to do the math. I have to think through what they, what they were. But anyway, they, <laughs> not they, enough sleep for that. Yeah, not enough sleep. Um, they produce a fair amount of beer. West Vlederen is the smallest in terms of production. You can only get at the brewery. But if you walk into a cafe in in one of the large cities, you're going to be able to buy, uh, you know, more than one of these products: a, a West Mall, an Orval. Mm. I think Orval makes. Um, 130,000 hectos a year. Right. Uh, I think Chimay is even bigger than that. So these are these are big and popular breweries, and you can find their okay. beer all over the country. All right. So they, they do drive things. Um, I didn't go to any of the Trappist breweries this time because right. I had gone to three the last time. Right. Uh, and what I – so I'll just kind of give an overview of what I was wh- – what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to go to a brewery – so there's a brewery in – uh, Antwerp that has re- resurrected this style of beer called safe beer uh-huh. and it's spelled S-E-E-F but it's pronounced safe Okay, uh, I was interested to see what that was all about that was weird I'll talk about that a little bit <laughs> and then I, uh, near Ghent uh, south of Ghent there were three breweries that I thought really touched the kind of hit interesting uh, segments of the market that I wanted to touch on one is Brewer Roman which is this it's kind of a, a it's it's possibly the oldest brewery in the country but it makes kind of a faceless uh beer that is not it, it, it's a it's a mid-sized brewery and uh-huh. they have a few beer lines but um they're not a, especially distinctive uh-huh. uh they're quite regional and they sell a fair amount of beer uh, locally and they sell uh, pilsner locally and they sell it in a lot of the cafes but they're trying to you know the 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 same waves of uh, economics that are hitting the rest of the world are hitting Belgium, so they're trying to figure out how they're going to evolve out of this identity. Right. Uh, nearby is a brewery called Verzette in Odenard, which is where Leafmans is. Mm-hmm. And these are this was a brewery founded by three young guys, two of which are brewers who were trained brewers at the University of Ghent, went off to work at um, regional breweries in in Belgium, De Proof and an unpronounceable one, Gentse, <laughs> uh, uh, which is where they make the uh, an Ode Brune called uh, 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 the the Jacobin Ode Brune, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating to me because these young guys and they're they looked like they were under thirty, but I guess that's just because I'm getting older and older. But <laughs> I think they were a little bit on the other side of thirty. Um, 
they ha- they had decided that they were going to build this brewery based on Ode Brune and try to resurrect this style. And they make other styles, but uh, their focus is really on traditional wood-aged Ode Brune. And I thought, this is super cool. I got yeah. to see what these guys are up to. And then finally, in, in Brussels, uh, Brasserie, Brasserie de la Seine is a brewery that I was not able to tour the first time I was there, but it's one of my favorite breweries in Belgium. It was started, it was kind of the one in that first wave of craft breweries uh, that, that hit Belgium. Uh, it's nearly 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yvonne de Betz, who I toured the brewery with, uh, was uh, really, uh, he's a traditionalist, and he, he, he created a, a brewery with a serious identity and a serious uh, focus on recreating an identity of Belgian beer for Brussels that was not part of the uh, uh, Lambic tradition. Uh-huh. So there's almost no breweries left in Brussels, which is interesting. That so, is. so there's no local, there's a kind of like no local beer. And his big thing was how do I, how do I, you know, reintegrate regular common drinking beer into Brussels? Right. Uh, and now there are several breweries there. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I think, I think in, in some ways, Yvonne is one of the most important figures in Belgian brewing because he, instead of trying to figure a, a, a new kind of interesting, unusual, un-Belgian-like beer that might appeal to people in a new way, he went the other way. And he went back to kind of classic, old, you know, really, really classic thinking about Belgian beer, mm-hmm. including consulting sources from the, uh, you know, the 19th century and early 20th century to see how beer was made and... and uh, He's one of the kind of best historians and scholars of, of beer, and Stan Hieronymus has, has used him as a source from writing his own books. So he's a very interesting figure, and I was super excited to see his brewery. And uh, I think that the day that I talked to you, that we when we were yeah, it was when we recorded that the podcast when I was <laughs> in Belgium, I had just finished the tour with Yvonne. Uh-huh. So yeah, so that was cool. Um, so that's kind of the overview. I want to talk just a little bit about uh, the specifics of each, well, not each brewery, but, but I'm going to pick a couple of these. And, and uh, I've got a few clips. And I want, it, they're, they're fun to hear these clips, partly just because hearing brewers talk about beer is, is interesting. <laughs> it's always fun. It's always fun. But also, uh, Belgians think about beer differently. And I think that you can hear that in these clips. The way that the breweries, uh, that these these brewers conceived their their kind of mission was really uh, <laughs> uh, it's really fun to just listen to their the the way they think about beer. It's one of the things that I uh, one one of the great pleasures that I have as a beer writer is I get to go around con- different countries and hear people and and see over time like all these UK people kind of think about beer in the same way. All these Belgian people think about beer in the same way. And so when I'm standing next to Yvonne and we're going to listen to him talk about um, uh, the shape of his fermenters, (laughs) uh, I felt like I'm having a very Belgian experience right now. This is a very cool thing. Yvonne is really giving me something very Belgian. Um, So why don't we... uh, uh, So Brasserie de... I'll just talk a little bit about Brasserie de la Seine and then we will... um, We'll talk and then we'll will uh, turn to some of that tape. So this brewery was founded in 2003, and it was originally a uh, kind of like a, a gypsy brewery. It wasn't exactly a gypsy brewery, but he, it, and it wasn't a contract brewery, but he was brewing at another brewery. Right. I don't know what that's called, a nomad brewery, until he could build his own brewery. 
uh, and he launched uh, this series of beers that um, are are quite Belgian in one way, but they're a little bit different in another way. And we we have one here called Taurus Bulba. Ah, this is the beer. Okay. Which is yeah, uh, is um, this one and Zinnabier. Zinnabier is is a stronger kind of version of this. Um, they they have uh, a quality that other Belgian beers don't have, which is hops. And we were this beer is actually dry hopped, and we were talking about this beer, and I said, yeah, and I and at, at the time I assumed even as recently as this trip, I assumed that uh, he had picked that up from that that was part of the modern tradition. He picked that up from the UK and and the US, right? And he said, oh no no no, uh, Belgians always used to dry hop. It was super common. And I did this because, you know, I read about this technique in, in our tradition, but it's a lost, it's kind of a lost tradition. Yeah. Uh, Belgians don't dry hop anymore. So that was really interesting. Uh, and right. then, uh, just to s- describe the, the kind of character of the, the brewery, which I find very cool, but people have criticized it for is it's a very yeast driven brewery in, in, in the sense that they use a particular yeast strain that is very specific and people will criticize it and say, Oh, it tastes like Sen. You can always tell, uh, you know, this brewery, uh, their beer all tastes the same because it has the same, uh, quality of, uh, the yeast, but that was incredibly intentional. And it Uh. was, it was, uh, part of Yvonne's, uh, goal to create, a, a signature flavor profile that right. would depend on the yeast, which all of these breweries historically would have only had one yeast strain. They would have just repitched the yeast over and over again. Right. And he wanted that. And then he wanted to work within that flavor palette, all his different flavors. And he okay. makes a stout and he makes a stronger version of, of this beer called Zinnabier. Uh, and we, we can, um, we can taste this when we come back, but let's listen to the tape because, uh, he talks about his yeast, in a way that is um, so Belgian, he talks about his yeast <laughs> like it's a lover and, uh, and how he treats his yeast, which he calls a she. So let's listen to that. Uh, and uh, we can listen to the, uh, well, maybe we'll just listen to both both clips and then come back. The second one is uh, he talks a little bit about the nature of Cezanne. And he makes one specifically, a beer that he specifically calls a Cezanne. I think in, a, in another way, you can think of all of these beers as coming from the kind of rustic tradition right so they're you know i think you know when he talks about rusticity he's sort of reflecting on his own beer mm-hmm. generally uh, although at the time we were talking about a saison that he'd made so yeah. let's listen to those and we'll come back and taste the taras bulba excellent these are all fermenters are clearly the most typical piece of equipment we have yeah and there is a clear uh, de la Seine touch okay and one big reason for that, attention, so uh, Joel has to come. Um, He's actually working. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 <laughs> we brew two batches a day here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, one of the two reasons for having a clear De La Seine touch identity comes from the shape of those fermenters. Um, I designed them myself. Oh, you did? By myself, and uh, actually, but they are not at all revolutionary. Um, the idea behind those tanks is to give no stress to my yeast. So my yeast is, I consider it's, it's, yeah, I consider it's the most important living being in the brewery. She's right. more important than, than myself. She's a she for me. I know in your language, 
she should be a it, but I, I cannot say that. It's impossible. She's a she. Uh, I is love her. Uh, she's, she's my best friend. Is it, is it she both in French and, and uh, 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 yes. Flemish? In Flemish, uh, I have no clue if it's masculine or feminine. I don't think it applies. Uh, okay. But in French, it is definitely yeah, feminine, sure. yeah, yeah, for, for, for sure. And, um, and so the last thing I want is to have my yeast under stress. I want her to be happy because I know for sure that when she's happy, she makes better beer. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, she hates hydrostatic pressure, uh, which you get in very tall, narrow tanks. Yeah. The reason for those tanks to exist um, are purely economical reasons, right. which means for me bad reasons. <laughs> um, it's um, it's coming from, of course, the, the, the big breweries because they, they wanted to find a way to put a huge volume on a very small footprint yeah. because you pay for the square inches or square meters or whatever you use on the ground. But yeah. if, you, if, you go, if you can go up, you, you, you don't pay more for that. And especially um, lager brewing, it doesn't matter as much. So, mm. uh, uh, oh, I'm not sure about that. Well, uh, but, uh, uh, industrial lager. I think oh, yeah, 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 of course. And um, but when you ask a yeast to work in, in those conditions under that, that huge pressure and with a super high convection of CO2 all the time, it's really super stressful for, for her. And the result is that she will release um, in the beer chemical components that will totally, for me at, at least, disbalance the beer. Yeah. Here it's exactly the contrary. Instead of asking myself how many beer can I put in this room, the uh, question was how will I make my yeast happy mm. um, because she deserves that and so the answer I found in um, old tanks from the 1930s when I started my career I had the chance to work in, in, a, in a brewery of the time um, and they had those cylindrical open uh, fermenters yep. and I loved so much the, um, the flavor profile of the beer coming out of, the, out of those tanks that I started to think about it to talk with old brewers and to do some scientific research to understand what is the influence of the geometry, the shape of the fermentation tanks on the beer. And so the answer was go wide, try to make something that is wider than tall. Mm -hmm. So the, the ratio width to height is, is important, um, but also the height of liquid, because it's that that will give a hydrostatic pressure or not. There is um, a minimum that applies for every brewer. The minimum is in metric one meter. One okay. meter is that basically. That's what we have in those things. If you go below that, you can have a stuck fermentation because you don't have enough convection right. in, in, in the tank and your fermentation will not be finished. Nobody wants that. One meter yeah. even if you've got a very big tank mm. or? Yeah. Okay. Um, but and you, you, you could not have, uh, well, maybe not if it's 10 meters wide, no, nobody has ever tried that, so <laughs> we only have examples for like a black, black classic tanks, I, yeah. I, would, I would say, um, but I, I think that would still, it would still work, but on a cool ship you could not, you could not get the proper fermentation, for right. it's just impossible. And then there is a maximum height shown by science, and that's 3 meters high, which is the top of the door there, that's 3 meters okay. basically. Uh -huh because they could see that from 0 0.3 bar of pressure, uh -huh. which is an height of liquid of 3 meters, a column of liquid of 3 meters, they could see some uh, physiological damage on the um, cell of the yeast membranes mm -hmm. as a sign of stress, mm -hmm. uh, actually. So 3 meters high is my danger zone, that I don't even want to reach. It's, it's way too dangerous out there. So I fixed my own limit at 2, 2.1, 2.2 meters. So I still have basically one meter margin towards the danger zone. 
And this is what I, I, I made in the new tank I designed for the bigger brewery. Okay. Um, so we, we were short in capacity, so I decided instead of making two small tanks to make one big one like that to uh -huh. see if it still gives the same result than the those ones. This and is it, a big and it does. Yeah, uh, that's hopefully. a that's a scary moment. Yeah, yeah. it was super scary. Like, this Believe is a me. lot of flavors coming. Mm. Um, so yeah, the rusticity to has, has to be a characteristic of the saison and. Uh, it's uh, honestly, it's very difficult to explain to someone else because we always have our own definition, or not even definition, because how to define rusticity, but feeling about rusticity. For me, it's more like an an absence of cleanliness, but even that is not a real definition. Um, I, I have very hard time defining rusticity. It's something you feel or not, but how to speak a common language about that? I have no answer, to to be honest. But for me, there are different ways to translate that into your beer. If you make what I call a clean saison, it means that it's made with one selected yeast that, that gives normally clean flavors. But a way to, to, to give rusticity is to, 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 buy, uh, to use um, rustic, noble but rustic grains. Mm -hmm. Uh, that will not yes, be uh, malted barley. Malted barley is of course there, but uh, using grains like spelt and, and rye and possibly wheat we, we will help that. Uh, here, here to increase the rusticity we also used um, an ancient variety of um, winter barley. Mm. Winter barley has always been the barley for making saison and lambics by the way in, in the past and, and mixing that we've spelled a little bit of rye for the spicy flavor. It gives an overall impression of rusticity. Uh, there are also two very ancient uh, type of hops there. Uh, one is from Belgium. The other one is, was, is a disappeared variety from France that the father of my hop grower in Germany was given as a gift. One plant and he could build a small field with it. It's called Tardif de Bourgogne, mm. and, yeah. the, and the Belgian variety is Grune Belle. That was the typical hop. Grune Belle. It means the green bell, the green cone. Bell is cone in Flemish, and um, they they're also giving it that little rusticity. But an easy way to get rusticity, not in this beer, but in other beers we make, is to use a Breton maïs, for instance, because the, the goaty flavor it can give our typical rustic flavors. Um, barrel aging helps also uh, using some bacteria or blending with a beer that has rustic character like Lembic um, gives that also. So you have different ways to get there, even if you start with a clean yeast. Wow, that was really interesting. Yeah, he's, he, he's an interesting guy, and I, you know, we don't. It, it, I don't need to say anything more. I don't think that when you just, only have one yeast strain, then I think you become very intimate with it. Well, and I, th I think especially when you build your whole tradition around yeast, it's it's the most intimate thing. You know, it's yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's a it's an interesting. It's it, it's also. It's does a, he propagate on site? Does he? I believe he does. Yeah. I I. I, I Tour a lot of breweries and I can't remember the details of everyone. But, um, if, you, if you just speak uh, uh, confidently, then no one will know. That's true. But I don't want to give wrong information. Yeah. I mean, the thing about yeast that's different than the other ingredients is yeast is a is a living being. Right. So it does feel more like a partner. And I think the way sure. he's personalizing that yeast is, uh, you know, yeah, it, it and reflects you can, that. And you can stress it out. You can make it happy. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to I'm gonna open this bottle of Terras Bulba. You 
that's the correct pronunciation. I have no idea. <laughs> that's how I would do it. <laughs> uh, this is a, 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 they call it an extra hoppy ale. It's a session ale. It's 4.5%. Uh, and as I mentioned to you off air, it's got a, a disclaimer on there. Do not age this beer. Yes. So we won't. Uh, it's, uh, Edwina's back. This is always a very uh, lively, effervescent uh, beer. Yeah, be so. careful. It also it also instructs you to decant off the yeast sediment. So yeah, that's a classic uh, Belgian thing. If you go to a Belgian cafe, they will decant it for you and leave the bottle next to the glass with uh, a finger or two, and you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, it, it says you can drink the yeast part separately. Yep, <laughs> don't mix it in. It's the classic. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, yeah, as it as it settles, oh, that's nice. Yeah. So I very effervescent. As it settles, we can. Um, Talk about this this next brewery, which is super cool. Uh, Rosette, these young guys. Um, Eau de Brune is a dying style. And the last time I was in Belgium, I talked to Rudy uh, Unpronounceable at, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at Rodenbach. And he, at the end of the tour, we sat and talked for about a half an hour. And he was about the, the, the fate of uh, this style of beer. And he was incredibly morose about its prospects. He just felt like it was a dying a dying product. And... Um, I left feeling that, you know, this, this kind of amazing sacred beer was, was going away. What do you think of that? Mm. It's good. I think it's lost a little of its dry hop quality. Yeah. Although you can, you can actually smell the hops pretty well in your nose. Yeah. So they had Zinnabeer, which is a stronger version of this beer. I shouldn't say stronger version, but it's a stronger beer that's made similarly to this on cask, which mm. is something he was experimenting with, which you would have loved. Well, that's nice. I like the, um, the, you can definitely, the, the, uh, bitterness of the hops is coming through. Their aromatics are slightly muted now, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. But the yeast is very interesting. Yeah. The yeast, of course, uh, is unaffected by those, mm -hmm. those extra couple of months of age that, uh, you know, they, they do fine. Uh, and you can really tell it's yeast forward. It's got a I think it's got a kind of a lemongrass. I was just note. about to say it's sort of citrus, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And it's I think that's the character of the yeast. The hops contribute, but um, you find that in the other beers. Yeah, too. no, not a not a hoppy citrusy like you would expect, like an American, <laughs> right? But no, just like a really subtle like citrus. It's um, a little a, a tiny bit tart and a little citrus. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's nice. exactly. I, it. I like that. I, I can, know it could sit with that for a while. It's, it's surprisingly bitter though one of my favorite beers it's very bitter yeah uh he, he you know and that's that was the thing that was interesting to me i assumed that was a nod to modernity and, and in fact it right. was not it was the other way interesting yeah it really um sticks on your tongue there that bitterness yeah mm. so the guys at verzette um uh decided that they would um uh create this brewery that does not have immediate obvious commercial prospects. Right. You know, they're going to make this brewery that, that uh, they make Eau de Brune. And we could get into a long discussion about what Eau de Brune is. Uh, Michael Jackson distinguished Eau de Brune from what he called Flemish Reds. So the Rodenbach would be a Flemish Red and right. Eau de Brune would be like the Leafmans. Rudy uh, and I think contemporary makers feel that that was a false dichotomy uh -huh. and that Flanders just has a, a, a wood aged you know vat aged beer that 
maybe reddish brown. Right. Uh, and they're slightly different production methods. Actually, every brewery kind of makes them differently. Um, but the, they they form a, a coherent tradition. And uh, the uh, at, at Verzette, the guy that I did the interview with was Alex Lippens. He's one of the two brewers, along with uh, Cohen Van Linker. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, locally, the local people would know what Ode Brune is. <clears throat> they wouldn't know these other terms, so we're just going to go with what people would know. Right, right. Uh, so they, they, you know, they've built this in giant, this giant barrel room. that has got some fooders, a lot of wine barrels. They're aging their beer uh, uh, in there, and I think something like thirty percent of the beer they're making is they're, they're selling is Eau de Brune, which is quite remarkable uh, for you know a brewery that has just gotten started and for which there's not appreciable market for the, this style of beer. Yeah. Um, and I was interested. I wanted to see them because I saw that they made this stuff, and I thought, you go to the website. Uh, it suggests they have a bunch of different styles. They even have kind of a hoppy beer, which when I had it, I ter- it turns out it was, had nothing to do with America, but uh, <laughs> I couldn't really tell that from the uh, website. And you know, I, I I thought maybe it was one of those things where they they wanted to keep the brewery the. Ode Brune tradition alive, but uh, the business model was based on these other beers, and that was kind of a sideline, which is kind of how we do barrel programs here in the United States. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, their their entire focus is on the Ode Brune and and the other stuff. Uh, you know, they they like and it's beer that they're proud of, but it's not it's not the focus of the brewery, and mm-hmm. they're prepared to stay small uh, and and service this kind of beer. Which is fantastic, and even more fantastic is much like Yvonne, uh, they went into the history to try to figure out how to make this beer right. traditionally. And the two clips that I have uh, talk about uh, one, the malt that they use, and the the boiling process. Uh, and the second one is about their uh, the way they they got their inoculation. And both of these, I think, are perfectly classic, perfectly 19th century, uh, <laughs> and the hard way to do it, and uh, the best way to do it. And I really admire them. They're not shortcuts. They're the long cuts. Uh, right. And uh, so maybe we can listen to them talk so you can, again, hear how Belgians are very proud of, of these old traditions and embracing them and trying to uh, get people excited about them. Okay. We are in search now for the... Uh, sour, uh, full-bodied, without using uh, added sugar or sweeteners. Uh-huh. We want to t- search for a natural, uh, sour, uh, full-body taste, uh, cool. and that's one of the part is the boiling. Mm-hmm. So you make melanoid, right. di- what melanoidin? Yeah. We no, call no melanoidin in English. Yeah. That uh, so that's our sugars and uh, proteins combining together, and they are unfermentable, so you get a full body. And th- so that's why we do it. Also, they are uh, good for aging uh, because they are reductonen. They uh, uh, will uh, react with oc- uh, uh, oxidation. Oxygen. Yeah, oxygen. Yeah. So. Uh, you had that more fruity character. So you're actually wanting those oxidative yeah. uh, reactions. Yeah, not oh. in the blonde beers. Right, right, right. Uh, for, the for the Oud Brun, we want it. Interesting. Uh, that's why we also 
make the super boil. That's the Arbrein boiled for 16 hours. Nice. Um, and that's old school. Yeah. That's how they did it uh, 150 years ago. We we got it from a book, but we had to wait to until we have our own brewery to do it right. because <laughs> the Ranke said not on our brew house yeah. <laughs> you don't so that's why uh since 2016 we do it once or twice a year nice uh, that is super cool and we uh use it uh we then divide it in different barrels and we use it in our standard or brain blends mm -hmm. because it's an extra color in our color palette to blend in uh -huh. but you have more fruit red fruits during the barrel aging uh, during the boil, it's not like a heavy boil, yeah. but like a spaghetti sauce right, uh, simmering. Yeah. Uh, but we evaporate 50% and then we add water again okay. because we don't want to have a high gravity beer. Right. Uh, but we want to add caramelized flavors. Yeah. Um, and people say, why don't you use more caramelized malts? But we say, no, why did we, they do it? 150 years ago then well I, uh, we have a we have a brewery that does a nine hour boil for uh, bar, a barley wine that they make and the character that you get out of it you can't produce with malts the way you know it's, it's very different so i i'm sure that yeah you're getting something very <laughs> very unusual and cool that way uh yeah we wanted to hit like 24 hours uh -huh. but the first time that we did it we had a party to to kill the time because boiling uh, when once you boil you don't have but we wanted to be at the brewery. But after 16 hours, it was already morning and we had a hangover <laughs> and we said, uh, let's, sto let's stop it here. So that's why we do it now 16 hours. Yeah. Uh, because in the, in the books that we had from Odenaarde, where Roman is, you had uh -huh. a lot of Oudbrin makers there like 100 years ago. Yeah. And they boiled like 20 to 24 hours. Yeah. And we wanted to know what's the, the impact of that long boil. Yeah. Uh, so what's the difference in your, can you describe the difference between the, the three hour and the 16 hour boil, what it does to the work, how it changes that? It gets more uh, full bodied and also during the barrel aging, more red fruits. Uh -huh. It's like, it's more complex. So you, so you do a, a primary fermentation with re regular Saccharomyces? Yeah, with yeast that we harvested from another tank. Uh -huh. uh, then because if there's some wild yeast in it, it's not that, well, right. uh, <laughs> it's gonna get sour anyway. So we don't, yeah. we take that risk. Yeah. Uh, and that's like one way, weak fermentation. And then we mature, don't mature it on stainless steel, but then it goes into barrels. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there we add our ho house culture, uh, home culture. And how did you come up with your house culture? Like doing uh, the first batch that we ever did as a homebrew, we put the ward outside, oh, like did. 200 liters. Uh -huh. And uh, the, uh, the day after we put it into uh, the barrel, uh -huh. and we got lucky having a good culture. And since then, we harvest the yeast from barrels that we empty. Uh -huh. Uh, we like if we empty 10 barrels we take the best four barrels or best three uh, barrels taking the slurry from the bottom of the barrel uh -huh. uh, clean the barrels uh, yeah putting that yeast in bottles refilling them and then taking the culture back in the barrels uh -huh. it's like a sourdough bread right. uh, idea that we do right. uh, by always selecting the best barrels so our we know our culture is evolving because we choose by taste mm -hmm. um, 
but we don't want to be on our uh, lab under a microscope is uh, uh, taking all the different Trying strains to yeah. And yeah. Uh, we are more like uh, if our taste bottoms say take the, this barrel uh, to to go on uh, that's how we do it uh. when you did that first uh, spontaneous thing where where did you do that what part of the country were you in uh, the southwest Flanders uh, well I w lived in a home of uh, Omer van der Henste so, okay. uh, because uh, yeah, I lived next to the brewery so, so I, wa I was also uh, the janitor or how do you say it? Janitor? Janitor. So uh, wow. uh, yeah I worked in the morning in the brewery and in the evening and if there was like in the night a technical problem with the brewery they called me up and uh -huh. I fixed the problem. Uh -huh. uh, so we did it. I had like a... a like a, a room there where we have our brew our hobby uh, brew house in it and we put just put a cooking kettle of 200 liters outside and let it inoculate for uh, a night and then right. in, a, in my cellar we had put the barrel and then by, by gravity we filled the barrel and That's it started cool. fermenting what time of year was that i think uh, november or uh -huh. something yeah like the uh, well, and that was the idea to do to make a a note brain with spontaneously yeast. That's very uh, cool. Uh, do you have any idea? Uh, you said you don't look at it under a, a microscope, but have you looked under it? Do you know what what cultures are in there? The what? the laboratory of the proof brewery did, and they said they found a culture and ours that they didn't find in any lambic ah. before. Uh, but we like the mystery, so we don't want to like look into it. Uh, we like we like the the magic around it. Uh, they do taste different, don't they? I mean, they have uh, uh, there's something uh, definitely something different in in the two flavors. That yeah. You get. So I don't know if that's a bacteria or a yeast or a something else, but something. Also, the bread our the bread on the mice's profile and our beer doesn't goes. Right. Uh, it's not a bruxolensis. It's yeah, a I don't. We don't want to have like bread in your face when you drink our beer. Yeah. We don't want to have a bread on a mice's profile. It has to be yeah, uh, lactic, uh, acidic, 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 torbacter, uh -huh. uh, fruity yeah. aromas, but no bread on the mice's. Sometimes we have it in some barrels, but we blend it away that you can't uh, taste it. Okay, before we go any further, I want to interject that we'd like to direct you to a cool project that our sponsor and partner, Freem, has put together. Uh, the brewery is currently in the midst of a large expansion about 20 miles closer to Portland in a town called Cascade Locks in the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, this will be a site of a much larger facility that will expand Freem's capacity to 60,000 barrels a year potential capacity, we should say. Right. <laughs> yeah, the capacity, not their production level. Yeah. Uh, as that unfolds, Freem will be releasing videos of the project, how things will change, and how they'll use the new space. Uh, the first video is out, and we'd like to direct you to go and see it. Founder Josh Freem walks you through the brewery and their plans in this video. And you can find that video at uh, freembeer.com slash blog. That's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R dot com slash blog. I also found it just going on YouTube and yeah, you can find it that and way. And putting too. in Freem as well, it's it's up there. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, 
Yeah. This is uh if you don't know Josh Freem, uh he's an interesting character and you really get a good sense of him there. He's <laughs> sort of meticulous, uh methodical and uh also very avid uh sense. He's a he's a very charming guy and you get that quality in this in this video, I think. Yeah, and when you visit and I finally got to visit the brewery, you kind of get a sense of that in the way that he's built his business and uh, the ethos he's put into it and the way he's designed everything. So uh, this will be pretty exciting. People are excited about getting extra space because they started in one third of this little building in Hood River and they've slowly taken over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But now they're done. They're, they're packed out. So there ain't no more building to take so over. Got, yeah. So they've got <laughs> barrels everywhere. They've got fooders. They've got uh, lots of conditioning tanks. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so check that out. Yeah. Check that out. Okay. So let's talk about uh, this fascinating <laughs> clips. Uh, 16 hour boil is what I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, baby. I was so excited to hear that, as you could hear in the clip with my. Uh, my well, the first thing that I thought about was interesting they talked about because, you know, when we homebrew, we boil for like, you know, an hour maybe, and then we lose a ton of liquid. Uh, so I thought the first thing is like, oh my gosh, what do you have left after a 16 hour boil? Yeah. But of course you just keep adding water. Yeah. So they add the water back cause they don't want to concentrate the wort. They don't want a very thick wort, but they want the right. flavor characteristics out, out of the long boil, yeah. uh, which is exactly in the 19th century, all the beer was boiled crazy long. There's this famous text, which I quote in the beer Bible called, uh, uh I don't know what it's called, but it's written by a guy named Georges Lacambre who wrote, uh, in around the eight, uh, he published it around 1850 and <clears throat> he did a survey of Belgian beer, uh, and he, all the breweries were like, if a three hour boil was a short boil back then, typically they would go eight to 10 hours. And then in this area of Flanders that we're talking about, uh, they would go, you know, up to 24 hours, um, which, which I, uh, uh, I think I'm, I, did Alex just say that? I can't, we just listened to it, but I can't remember if he, if he mentioned on that part, I've listened to that tape over and over again. Anyway, uh, they, 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 um. Uh, tried to go that long, but then uh, that's kind of crazy, so they didn't do that. But but anyway, 16 hours is an in- inconceivably long period of time to boil a wort uh, for for what is, a, in reality, a pretty subtle flavor component. Right. And it was cool because uh, we he had I got to taste these beers afterwards. They do a they do a a blend where they put that 16 the long boil as he calls it uh, back into their beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Typically, but they also do a single batch, like the long, they do a long boil, what they call a long boil, Ode Brun. And uh, we tried that next to the regular one. Right. So I could get a sense of what it was. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it, I won't say it's subtle. I think it would be subtle to a, a person uh, for whom these beer styles are not so uh, familiar because there's so many other intense flavors. Right. But side by side, you really get a sense of, of it. It's much sweeter. It's much uh, mm-hmm. fuller. Mm-hmm. The what the 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 red fruit quality he was talking about is much more obvious. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know if that's biochemical that the red fruit comes out of the the melanoidins working with the yeast, or if it's just straight. I don't know. Anyway, it is it is fascinating, and I think it goes to show that these guys are willing to do something crazy to produce uh, interesting beer that that probably does not pencil out. You know. <laughs> from a bean sure. counterweight. Well, I was even thinking in the 19th century, I mean, think about how much whatever, wood, coal, I don't know what they were using. Yeah, I mean, totally. That's, that's a ton of resources to, to brew. And, and so what was the original purpose of doing it? Was it a flavor or? Yeah, it, it, this is the most bizarre thing. 
and maybe a hint of why Belgium is still so bizarre. <laughs> uh, customers believed that uh, brown was a signal of quality, oh, okay. and they didn't use dark malt. Right. I don't know why they didn't use dark malt, so they <laughs> boiled it until it got really brown, and then that was the signal of quality. That's fascinating. Yeah, so bizarre. Uh, that's classic Belgium. Don't do things the easy way. Do them the And like I say, I mean, that's, that's, that was a significant cost. So that had to be a strong signal. Like, I mean, that was a big part of the demand, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so we're, I think we're running along. I'll just uh, mention very quickly, I also went to Verhaga, uh, which is the place that does um, the uh, Duchess de Bouillon. Mm-hmm. Probably mispronouncing that. Um, right, right. A, right. Another classic right. Flemish brown producer, Oudbrun uh, producer. That was super cool. They've been very secretive. Uh, not secretive, but um, family brewery, sixth generation. Uh, Peter Verhaga is the brewer, sixth generation owner, right. uh, and they just have not really engaged with the public until recently. So right. it was super cool for me to get to see them. Um, and then uh, Roman is this other interesting brewery, and 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 that was fun to see how a big brewery that uh, uh, it was rebuilt in the 1930s after uh, in the interwar period right. as a lager brewery. It had been just a little oh. family farmhouse brewery. Uh-huh. And it's a gorgeous facility. There's a blog post I have that shows how beautiful it is. Um, and, it, you know, they sold a lot of Pilsner in the region. Uh, when you drive, it's a little bit like uh, Britain. When you drive around at the cafes all over Belgium, you'll get different regional beer right. wherever you are. It'll be the local brewery. So they've done very well with that. But, um, you know, more breweries, more encroachment, more Jupiler cells, right. you know, that they're having to compete against. So uh, they're trying to figure out what the way forward is. And they've got a a beer that has uh, uh, Brettanomyces, which was okay. It was it was interesting. It was okay. It wasn't the greatest beer I ever had. They also have this other interesting beer that was blew my mind. They have a a, a beer called Sluber, S L O E B E R, which was a strong Belgian kind of in the Duval. It was sort of a Duval inspired beer. Well, they decided to take that Sluber and uh, do an American popping regime on it <laughs> and they call it an IPA and it was it was fascinating it was a brute IPA ah. and they had never even heard of that but it had <laughs> it had all that quality of incredible Jeff was, the marketing manager said you guys <laughs> I'm like do you guys know this tastes exactly like a brute IPA it's very dry because they use uh-huh. a lot of sugar in the grist yeah. you know it's, it's like a classic Belgian presentation right. and uh, <laughs> uh, and then it, they used I think a ton of citrus and mosaic wow and, <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's like you guys didn't it know good? it, but you invent. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. You've invented brewed IPA. Wow. So yeah, that was cool. Hey, I just have. Uh, I know we got to wrap it up, but I have a question. Are these new? So the, do these new breweries resemble the ancient breweries that you've seen? I mean, the Belgian breweries sort of have a similar. They all use fooders and barrels yeah. and. Yeah, I mean, uh, they don't have old equipment, right? So the breweries right. themselves. But they're the all houses. stainless steel and. Yeah, I mean, like Frisette is a stainless steel brewery, okay. but you go to the barrel room yeah. and they have a bunch of uh, uh, old fooders that they're they're right. starting to collect, yeah. and they're they have a lot of wine barrels too. My sense is uh, they're they're gonna you know it's been a while, so they're it hasn't been super long, so they haven't figured out the mix of wood that they're gonna want. But right. you get different character because of the biochemistry that happens in a barrel from yeah. a big and versus a little one. Not enough time to get into that, but you know they're <laughs> yeah. they're young guys are developing it, and and as they said, they're going to be they would like to do this for the rest of their lives and develop this brewery into one of those old breweries. Right. That will they'll figure that out. They'll have a barrel room that has 30, 40 year old fooders in there that they've collected, and yeah. Um, so yeah, that's their plan. Interesting. 
Okay. Uh, so we should move on. Yeah. Way, so. Uh, uh, oh, go ahead. I think we're running long. Maybe we we don't have uh, another. We we only have one mailbag question for next time. Maybe we should kick this mail mailbag question to our next week. Oh, How's gonna, that sound? You're gonna tease. You're gonna tease the next week's pod. Uh, well, no. I was just thinking maybe you know we're if we're running long here we should. Uh... Oh, maybe we have time. Yeah, our uh, our our producer Chase, hi Chase, has just informed us that we might have enough time to squeeze in this. Let's do it. <laughs> I thought I was running long. Well, then actually, let me just mention Safe Beer. Then the last thing is okay. This good. this this last brewery. Oh yeah, you never got back to it. Antwerp. Um, uh, this guy uh, researched this beer. So in in Antwerp, there's this part of the city called uh, Safe. Say I. I've, I've forgotten what the part of the city is. <laughs> That's okay. But it's not a part, it's not a neighborhood that gave the name to the beer. Right. The beer, there were so many breweries ah, in this neighborhood and it was up by the docks. It was the working class place. Right, right. right. Uh, it, there were so many of them that it came the name to the, to the, to the neighborhood, which still exists. And this guy said, you know, this is an Antwerp thing. We should have safe beer here. And so he tried to figure out what safe beer would look like and i think the beer that he made is fairly impressionistic i don't think it is it does not taste anything like a 19th century beer to me uh-huh. um i think it has been uh made in a way that you can but how would you describe it? it it was um it was sort of halfway between a wit beer and a uh saison uh-huh. i think it has uh some rustic grains in it and it's you know, got a lot of yeast character of course it's, it's hazy it's very easy drinking so it's more on the wit beer side that way it's uh maybe six and a half percent and um, I had it at the brewery, which is in a remote kind of industrial place up by the docks. Uh, and <clears throat> I walked up there and I was all hot and sweaty and I drank that safe beer in about three minutes. Uh, so it was, it, was, <laughs> it went down easy. It huh? went down easy. It was a nice thirst quencher. Yeah. yeah. So as it was cool. Yeah. As you'd imagine maybe for dock workers. Yeah. They want, they want something to quench the thirst and be able to session with, right? Yeah, so that's cool. cool. Um, and I that you know I could talk about Belgium for the rest of the day, but we will we will put a pin in it there, and uh, you can read more about it in the second edition of the Beer Bible. <laughs> that's right. You got to say something. <laughs> got to give people reason to buy. Yep. Uh, okay. So uh, why don't we get to the mailbag real quick? Then we can because this is a a good comment. So uh, J P Petrus, Beatrice, I think. Yes. Sorry, JP, if I've... We, I we're trying our best here. Yeah, I think it's Beatrice. Uh, it says, I think I found a solution to your dispute with Patrick about the correct way to drink a beer, to decant or not decant. It's not necessarily the correct way, but you don't mind not decanting. Right. And I always decant if I can. Right. And really don't like it when I decant. Uh, Noon Whistle here outside Chicago specializes in hazies and has developed a can where the whole top comes off. I have seen these. I've not actually experienced one. You get the convenience of a can, but still get access to the aroma Patrick loves so much. Uh, have you guys seen this in Portland yet? And is this a happy meeting that puts your dispute to rest? Both excellent questions and comments. So this is basically uh, a lot of, you know, cans for like, you know, soup and vegetables and things like that have these tops now. Instead of using, having to use a can opener, you have a little pull top and the whole top basically pulls off. And then you have a glass of beer. And then essentially what you have is, yeah, the whole open top. And so I would say uh, all... It gets ninety percent of what I'm what I want because mostly what I'm looking for is aroma, um, but I also like the visual. 
So you don't quite get the visual, but that's okay. Right. But I would say that yeah, it's 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 far superior to to just a little the little hole because you can actually get a lot of the aroma characteristics. And no, I haven't seen them important. Have you? I have used these can I've opened one of these cans and I when this came in, I racked my brain to figure out where I had that beer and I don't know where it was. But I have opened them and the the one complaint I have is um as you're opening it, you get that real metal grindy thing uh-huh. and it kind of like the the nails on the uh, chalkboard deal. Um so I don't love that. If somebody else opens them, I'm into them. Yeah, and you'd get a little well, I'm just extrapolating from my experience with the tin cans is uh, uh tin being euphemistic, of course, but um is you still get a little bit of a uh, a sharp ridge. It's um, it's inside though. Yeah. It, it turns out it, it, it drinks doesn't really fine. hit your lips. Yeah, it does. It drinks fine. But yeah, um, I think it's fantastic. I don't know. It'd be very interesting to know whether they lose pressure that way. Probably not. No, I wouldn't. Or think whether so. whether it matters with the do that's all oxygen. Probably not. So I think it's great. There might be an environmental downside to it. I don't know if you can recycle both parts of the can. But... Yeah, the, the the current can, the little thing stays in the can. This is the big the big. The big revolution in the 1970s from the little pool tab that used to like litter beaches everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but this actually creates an, a, a, a piece that comes off. Right. So that's that's maybe one downside. But yeah, I mean, aroma is the big thing, especially since I really like hoppy beers. So aroma matters a lot. But I also like uh, German style beers, for example. And I love a, a beautiful, bright beer to, to look at and admire. So. Yeah. I, I'm cool. With, I'm cool with it all. Patrick's the one who's got the. I do. I have a. I have a be in my bonnet. Bag. You have a be in your bonnet. All right. A few words going out. Once again, we want to extend our hearty thank you to Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Bonnet Podcast. Please visit them in Hood River, Oregon and at freembeer.com. Go to Hood River. Hood River is wonderful. Visit them. Visit a lot of the other great breweries around. Do some hiking around the gorge. Some of the best hiking on the planet. Yeah. And uh, then you built up a nice thirst and then you got breweries. Uh, that was the plan until I broke my ankle. Yeah. Sorry uh, about that. <laughs> okay. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, this is all changing, right? Like there's now the Apple the Apple Pod app. I have no idea. Yeah, it's new now. All the new the new stuff, the new iOS and the new uh, OS. Okay, wherever you find your podcast, don't forget to rate us, review us. Uh, that helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or visit us on social media. Jeff blogs at the Beervana bo- blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at at Beervana. Uh, I tweet at, at Beernomics, and I think we're done. This is going to be interesting because we And we both, did you say that, I zoned out there. I was I was thinking about uh, Taurus Bull, but did you say Beervana uh, Pod, our, blo- our uh, Twitter, oh. uh, Beervana Pod? Well, no, I didn't say it because it's not on the script, dude. Come on, man. Get on that. <laughs> so, yeah, the Beervana, at Beervana Pod? Yep. Okay. At sign, Beervana Pod. Sign up. You can DM, DM us there. Yeah, that's a great place to ask questions. It is. Actually, that's probably where you should primarily send people. Yeah. Because that's now our conduit just for the pod content. Yes. Uh, there's also a Beer Vonda blog Facebook page. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cheers, Jeff. I'll just grab the, I'll drink the sediment in the bottom of the Terras Bulba. Cool. And uh, you'll have a glass. So cheers. Or Schmierlap. <laughs> we didn't talk about Schmierlap. That's an offensive thing to say. Don't, don't say Schmierlap. Actually do. I'm reading the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Schmierlap. Schmierlap. <laughs>